And these themes keep popping up again and again and again. Take, for example, the psalm we're looking at tonight, Psalm 51. Within this psalm, there's two themes, not ones that are only found here, not solely found here, but ones that are prevalent here, which actually transform everything about the way we live. And they actually pop up all through the Bible. It's interesting with these two themes I'm talking about, because they seemingly contradict with one another. Yet when you grasp hold of both of them, they coalesce and change your life. The themes of this, are you ready? Theme number one. You'll see it in Psalm 51 as we go on. Theme number one is this. Things are worse than you think. When you take a step back and review your life with all honesty, not fake news, not the fake version of your life that you and I are so practiced at doing, but the authentic article, your real life, things are much worse than you think. Theme number two, things are much, much better than you could have ever imagined. Theme one, things are worse. Theme two, things are better. How can these things actually coexist with one another? Well, we have nowhere better to see how these things coexist than in this psalm, Psalm 51. And as I said, it's a great privilege for me to look at it for a few reasons. It's one of the most famous psalms in the Bible for a reason. It screams out agony and authentic anguish about life. It's personally been very um, important for me. It's a psalm I've gone back to uh, again and again and again in life. My prayer for us tonight is that all of us, no matter what your week, your day, your hour has been like, can read it, be convicted by it, and transformed it, transformed by it through the power of God's Word. But the thing is, in order to understand it properly, in order to, to read these words and grasp hold of it, you need to understand the context. Now have a look. If you've got a Bible with you, open back up to Psalm 51. And it's worth saying at this point, if you do not own a Bible, uh, we would love to give you one. So on the way out tonight, where you checked in at that desk, there's a pile of orange Bibles, we'd love for you to take that. But if you don't have one tonight, that's absolutely fine. Uh, I'll read along so you can hopefully follow along. In Psalm 51, at the very beginning, you'll see a, a subtitle written in italics. Now, that hasn't been edit, ed, added in by an editor later. That was in the original text that was actually in there. Editors added in numbers, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, but not this bit. This was in the original text. And it gives you an inkling that there's more to this backstory than than you might be aware of. Have a look what it says. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's something to this story, isn't there? You can read it there. Something's happened. That's crucial, vital for you and I to understand what happened so we can understand the depth, the weight of these words. So if you do have your Bible, flick back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Can you do that for me? 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. If you get those two chapters in front of you, that'll be helpful. Now, this is a well-known story to many of us, but for some of you it won't be. Uh, and all of us need to be reminded of the content. This is a story all about a man called King David. And David is the guy who wrote this song, who wrote this psalm. David is the king of ancient Israel. His nation is at war with another country, but David's not on the battlefield. He's at home, relaxing, doing nothing. One day, he gets up, he goes to his palace rooftop, and he spies a beautiful woman, a beautiful naked woman called Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is bathing. So David calls her to himself, and they sleep together. Now, that's a problem on a variety of fronts. First of all, he's married. Not to Bathsheba, to someone else. Secondly, she's married. She's married to a man called Uriah. Uriah is one of David's chief soldiers. One of his soldiers who's fighting his war on a battlefield. Bathsheba is also the granddaughter of one of David's chief political allies. It's enormously problematic what he's decided to do in a moment of lust. And he does it. Now, unfortunately for David, things get worse. Bathsheba falls pregnant to him. And David begins to freak out. Before I became a Christian, um, this, not exactly this, I'm not the king of Israel, uh, but I had a kid when I was 20. Um, I got my girlfriend pregnant. I had a very religious family. And I had one of those moments of looking at the pregnancy stick going, no, 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 two lines. Two li- You're too young to understand what that means. Uh, she got pregnant. It was terrifying news. I feel David's pain here. What can he do? Well, immediately what he tries to do is call Uriah back from the battlefield and coerce him into sleeping with Bathsheba so he thinks it's his baby. But Uriah will not do it. This is a man who says no to sleeping with his wife. Okay, he says no. That's significant. He says no, he will not do it. He has too much integrity. And so David comes up with, in all seriousness, a wicked, sinister, evil plot. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield and then sends a secret message with him. A secret message to his generals. The message says, when Uriah gets into heavy fighting, withdraw the other troops from him. Now there's a word for that. Do you know what it is? It's called murder. That's exactly what happens. Uriah dies. He gets killed. And so David, playing the sympathetic king, marries the poor widow Bathsheba and raises the child. Now, if we can just take a step back, this is thousands of years ago, but if this sort of thing happened today, this is still shocking, isn't it? Like, it's bad. Adultery, lying, deceit, plotting, murder. But it's made even worse when you understand more about the character of David. You see, it's safe to say that up until this point in the Old Testament of the Bible, David is, if not the, in the top three greatest human beings who ever lived. He is an incredible man. He's a man who is godly. He loves God. He's anointed by God, chosen by God, a man after God's own heart, incredibly gifted. He's a poet, a songwriter, a musician. He's also incredibly brave. He fought Goliath, if you know that story with the giant Goliath. He's a military strategist. He's a ferocious fighter. This guy's a quadruple threat. Okay, He is an amazing guy. Now, you and I, if we had one inch of that kind of gifting and opportunity, we would probably be puffed up with arrogance. I certainly know that I would. I don't need an excuse to be arrogant. But David's not. He's kind. He's thoughtful. He's generous. He's a good guy. Of all the people who would fall into adultery and murder, David should be the last on the list. This is in the same category 
as waking up tomorrow morning and seeing the front page that the Queen has been arrested for shoplifting. You're like, what? Maybe she's stealing all the copies of The Crown so we can't watch it, but what is she doing? Or that David Attenborough, you know that guy, the, what's the word? Conservationist? Conservationist guy. He gets arrested with elephant tusk jewellery. You know, David, what are you doing with that, mate? In all seriousness, this is wicked of a man who up until this point has displayed utmost integrity. This should shock us, but it doesn't. If you're honest with yourself, it doesn't, does it? Because you know what you're capable of. I know what I'm capable of. I'm capable of anything. This is a terrible story. Go to the end of chapter 11, and you see a verse. David thinks he's gotten away with it. But the very last words of chapter 11 say this, verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We think we have secrets, but there are no secrets to God. He's seen it all. And God disapproves of this evil act, and he will not allow this evil act to go unaccounted for. So chapter 12, the entirety of chapter 12, details what happened next. God has a prophet called Nathan. And God reveals the truth to Nathan about what David had done. And so Nathan goes and confronts David. David, upon hearing the news that not only does Nathan and God know, but actually detailing the depth of the depravity of what he does, is struck to the core. But I want to make it clear. He's not struck to the core because the truth has been revealed and he's terrified about what's going to happen. After all, he's the king. He does what he wants. He is struck to the core with the absolute understanding that he has done something wicked. Have you ever had that feeling? That he has done something truly horrible. Something truly despicable. So David, in this moment of confrontation, condemnation, revelation, he writes a poem. He writes a song, the psalm. A confession and admission of the most despicable thing he's ever done. And it's the psalm we're looking at tonight, Psalm 51. Flick back there now in your Bibles. Now I want to make it clear as we go through tonight that we're going to learn about three different people. First of all, we're learning about God. So not about people. We're learning about God. Who he is, what he loves, what he detests, what he wants. Secondly, we will learn about David, this great man fallen. But I want to make it very clear to you tonight that the chief purpose, primary purpose of this psalm for you and I to read thousands of years later is not to act as a microscope upon which we cause judgments on David's actions. And it is not to act as a set of binoculars upon which we look left and right at everyone else and go, them, 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 them. No, the primary purpose of this psalm is to act as a mirror. A mirror to you and me. And not a mirror which shows us the vision we like to pretend of whom we are. But a mirror that shows us the reality, the black and white, the real truth about who we are. You see, the truth is, things are far, far worse than you think. 
Now, this psalm is split into two sections, kind of in the middle. And what we're going to do to begin with is just look at that first section, verse 1 to 9. I call it a call for grace. Have a look at the first three verses. And I want you to take attention, as we look at these first three verses, upon how David thinks about himself. Answer that question as we read it. What does David think about himself? What's he saying about himself here? This is how it begins. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. How does David review his character? Well, four times he uses the words transgression, iniquity, and sin. And those words actually kind of mean the same thing. They mean the intentional rejection of God. That at their core, they've heard God's word. God's call to reign and rule over all of life and said, no. Make no mistake, we often think sin is something accidental, don't you? Oh, I just tripped up and I'm lying. Not my fault. It sweats out of me. What can I do? All of our sin, we have done on purpose. It's intentional. But take note of what David doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about self-defense. No self-justification. No excuses. No mitigating circumstances. No mention of previous goodness. No blaming elsewhere. All he simply does is cry out for mercy. And mercy is undeserved favor. Unmerited withholding of judgment. David does not approach the throne of God like a lawyer trying to defend, uh, trying to defend his client, but rather as a condemned man pleading for clemency. And what we have here, my dear friends, as clearly as anywhere in the entire Bible, we have the perfect picture of the true heart of repentance. And that's important because you see, Jesus. Or in a thousand years later, when he starts his earthly ministry that we have recorded in the Gospel of Mark, he goes to people and what does he say? Repent. Repent and believe. Repentance is at the very heart of what it is to be a Christian. And here we have the very heart of what it is to repent. Repentance is not found in avoidance of who you are or denial of who you are. It's only found in acknowledgement. You know, it's, it's said that the hardest ability to master is responsibility. It's a good line, isn't it? If you're a note taker, write that down. The hardest ability to master is responsibility. And I think that's absolutely true. The hardest thing for us to do is admit we're wrong. When we're challenged or confronted, what, would, what do we do? We blame. Not me, you. Not me, them. It's not my fault. We deny. We excuse. To not do those things it goes against our very nature. A few years ago, I had dinner um, with one of, his, one of Australia's most notorious and infamous criminals. Um, this man was on the front page of all the newspapers for these things that he had done, multiple things that he had done, which were against the law. Um, but he knew someone who was a Christian. 
He knew someone who cared for him, who loved Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And this person invited the man to church, a church I used to work at in Sydney. Um, and I saw him there and I looked at him and thought, hold on, that's old mate, that's, old, that's the guy. So I went over and talked to him. You don't have to be a criminal for me to talk to you at church, but it helps. And I, I went over uh, and I said to him, hey, do you know where I can get a cheap CD player? I didn't say that. I said, um, hey, you know, welcome. It's great to have you here, all that kind of stuff. Who's selling CD players? Honestly, honestly, what am I showing my age? We got talking, and anyway, I said, we should catch up again. And he said, let's go out for dinner this week. So we went out to dinner that week to a Chinese restaurant in Penrith. Anyone here from Penrith? Watch your wallets if there are. Anyone from Penrith? We go there to this Chinese restaurant, and we're talking, and we're having good banter back and forth, back and forth. He's a lovely guy, you know, very charismatic. Um, but we get to midway in the conversation, and I pluck up the courage, and I think, man, I've only got one shot with this guy. You see, up until that week, until the dinner, I'd done some Googling about him, and I'd realised exactly how much trouble he was in. He was in big trouble. He had been caught breaking the law on camera. And I'd watched the video on camera. He was doing it. Multiple eyewitnesses claiming this man has done X, Y, and Z. I want to talk to him about Jesus. I'm like, well, whew. So, mate, what about um, the claims against you? And his response was staggering. He began to get very animated began to get very, very loud, he got incredibly defensive. You know what he said? I didn't do it. I've been set up. It's not true. The coppers planted it on me. My ex-wife's involved. I know it. And I'm sitting there going, I've seen the video, you muppet. What do you mean? I've seen you do it. And he's like, no, no, it wasn't me. Someone wear a mask. I don't know what it was. It wasn't me. And I thought, my goodness, I want a video camera of this. This is a masterclass in delusion, a masterclass in hypocrisy. I couldn't believe that faced with clear evidence, he would still say, I didn't do it. I got in the car that night and I drove home and I just thought, oh, my goodness. Thank you, God, that I am not like that man. But I am. Thank you, God. I'm not like him. I am. So are you. You find it impossible. Impossible to admit it. And I've got to be perfectly frank with you, but if criticizing people and looking down my nose at people was an Olympic sport, I'm a world champion. I can find your flaws before you even wake up. I can see them a mile off. Sorry, I'm not pointing at you directly. You. <laughs> I'll just point at the camera of myself. I can see your I can see your flaws. I've registered them. And if the mood takes me, I'll talk about them. But I find it almost impossible to see them in myself. I'll see your little splinters and specks, but my log, I just can't do it. David has been denying his guilt for months. Can you imagine him holding this little newborn baby? Goo, goo, gaga. Your mum's ex-husband I killed. I sent him to war. I murdered your mum's ex-husband. He doesn't care. We're capable of anything. Anything. 
And yet here, confronted by the truth, by the gravity of what he's done, David, in an act of miraculous power, admits it. He doesn't deny it. He takes responsibility. He understands at this moment, we can see it, how evil what he's done is. But the terrifying news is that it's worse than he thinks. Look at verse 4. Against you, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now hold on, hold on. What? David has undoubtedly used his power to sleep with Bathsheba. He's betrayed Uriah, he's betrayed his family, her family, their own family. In no small way has he sinned. Adultery, lies, murder, these are not insignificant things. And yet what does David say? Against you, God, I have sinned. It's important we understand and clarify what he's saying here. It is not that David is minimizing for a minute the sin he has committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and others. Our sin, your sin, my sin, it hurts other people. And it is a sin. It is a crime against the holy God. But what he's doing here hyperbolically, to make crystal clear in high definition, crystal clarity for all of us, is to maximize the true horror of sin. That sin at its core, the thing that makes sin, sin is a rejection of God. A rejection of God's reign, rule and authority over your life. That's what makes sin, sin. And so when you and I hurt one another, as we do, how many of you guys today? For me, only probably 30. But when you and I hurt other people in thought and word and deed, yes, we sin against them. But primarily, we're sinning against God, our God, who has told us, love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. And we look at him and we say, no. Me, not you. God reigns over the universe in his throne, but we shift him and place ourselves in his seat. Things are worse than we think. Because our sin, as evil and as wicked as it can be, is primarily against God. And that's bad news for you if right now you're thinking, but hold on, mate, you don't even know me. I've never murdered anyone. I haven't cheated. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done anything like this. I'm not in the same boat as David. Yes, we are. Because whether you fall short of God's standard by a millimetre or by a mile, it doesn't matter. The core of our sin is a rejection of God. Worse still, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sin does not spring from the wrong crowd. You can tell your parents that next time they tell you that your friends are a bad influence. Go, no, mum, I'm the bad influence. You don't need help. Being a bad influence. You don't need help to sin. It's in you. Do you think that? You don't get it from a bad childhood. You don't inherit it from evil parents. Not in that sense. You are a sinner because you were born a sinner. Put it this way. A great quote. I didn't make it up. A great one. We are not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. It's our sin, the very core of it, who we are, the rejection of God, that makes us sinners. And that destroys our relationship with God. It hurts other people in the process, and worse still, when you and I die, which we will, we will stand before a holy and righteous God in judgment for what we've done. And on our own, we will be found guilty. Things are worse than you think. Let's just take a step back for a moment. This is a dark picture of life, isn't it? And maybe if you're a guest here tonight, you're like, whoa, why would I come here? We love you. Thank you for coming. Just bear with us. This is a bleak picture of life. But my dear friends, hear me, hear me. This is reality. To say anything else is delusion. Life is dark. It is black. Things are worse than you think. But remember, that's not the only theme in this passage. Yes, things are worse than you think, but also things are far, far better than you could possibly imagine. You see, David, this man with guilt on his hands, blood on his hands. You see, he's struck at this very moment, not just the utter clarity of who he is, but he's also struck an utter clarity of who God is. Look again at verse 1. And this time, look what David says about God and God's nature. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David comes to the foot of God asking for mercy, unmerited grace and favour with hope. But not a blind, crossing of your fingers, wishing for the best kind of hope. Solid hope. Hope based on evidence. Evidence of what? That God's nature is love. Mercy. Compassion. That our God, the one true God, the real God, He is a God of grace and mercy who loves to give good things to His people. And it's because David knows that about God's character that he doesn't stop at asking for mercy. Remember, what's mercy? Mercy is the, the withholding of punishment. But he actually goes further than that. Look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now, obviously, side note, we need to understand what hyssop is. It's not a word that's used in common language, mine anyway. Hyssop was a plant, is a plant. Okay? And in the Old Testament of the Bible, when David was living, it was used in the temple, in the synagogue. It was turned into a brush and dipped into the blood of the sacrificed lamb. An example of it is Exodus chapter 12, where the angel of death comes onto the Egyptian Town, the Egyptian country, I should say, and the Hebrew people with a hyssop plant, dip it in the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorways and the angel of death goes over them. So what is David saying here? He's not saying, Father, God, just ignore what I've done. Overlook what I've done. Give me a free pass. Don't you know how amazing I've been? Haven't you heard of Goliath? Do you know what I did with him? God, I'm amazing. No. Oh. 
He's saying, God, because of the sacrifice, I can be clean. He's asking for forgiveness based on the sacrifice of blood that had been made on his behalf. And you see, my friends, this is where you and I come screaming into this picture. This is where this passage is not just the binoculars and the microscope, but the mirror. Because you and I can also cry to God and point to the blood of the Lamb. But not the ancient Old Testament lamb, the literal sheep that was used in sacrifice. But Jesus Christ, one of whose titles was the Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Look, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, walked on this planet. He walked on this earth. And he did all manner of things. He taught, he preached, he healed. He did incredible miracles. But primarily, above all things, Jesus came to die. The very man who created all things, walked to a wooden cross. He took off his crown for a crown of thorns and he died. Why? Because he did so with your sin on his soul. To take the punishment that you and I deserve. You see, my friends, things are worse than we think. We've sinned against God. We deserve justice and punishment, but things are better than we imagine. God is a God of grace and mercy who has moved heaven and earth so you and I can be forgiven. So what do we need to do? We need to come to God for mercy, to cry out to Him for forgiveness. And I hesitate to use strong language like, uh, it's impossible to do, but I have to because the Bible makes it clear and it's urgent you understand that it is not possible. It's impossible to be a Christian unless you recognize what a sinner you are and you recognize what a great saviour Jesus is. It is impossible to be a Christian until you acknowledge the completeness, the totality of your sinfulness. Because unless you feel the need for a saviour, you will never cry out to be saved. And so we have those two themes at work. I hope you can see them there in those first nine verses. Things are worse and better than we think. We need God's grace. We have God's grace and we have it in Jesus. You know, uh, as Lockie was saying in this interview... One of the best things about uh, being here at EV, and can I tell you, one of the best things about working at EV is being able to be involved in the Life Series. And um, We just had the Explaining Christianity course, which finished this week. Do you know this week we had six people profess faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior for the first time? Isn't that amazing? Six people who put their faith in Jesus. You know, I remember when I first became a Christian, and it's funny that many of the emotions that we feel upon conversion are the same for all of us. Some of you will probably be able to relate to this. Most people, when they first become Christians, if you ask them how they feel, will say two things. They'll say joy and relief. Joy. God loves me. It doesn't matter what I've done, where I've been, what I've seen, what I've said. God loves me. I can be saved. Two, relief. Whew. I don't need to work for it anymore. I can go to heaven. What's interesting, though, is that whilst those two emotions are absolutely beautiful and accurate, and can I say we should all feel those things, 
There is another part of being a Christian that tends to take a little bit longer for people to grasp hold of. Something that actually you and I as Christians, if you're a Christian here tonight, also forget easily and can take a while to grasp hold of. And it's this. Jesus Christ did not just die for the forgiveness of sins. Let me put it another way. Jesus died for more than just the forgiveness of sins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he did it so your past, present, and future crimes and rejection of God could be forgiven. Amen. Yes. But Jesus did not just do it to wipe out sin, but also to start something new in your heart. You see, much of the language about conversion is about a fresh start. Have you noticed it before? You must be born again. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. God is also primarily concerned that your life would not be the same, but that you would grow. That you would not stay the same as a Christian, but that you would grow up. And so that's what we see with David in the second half of this psalm. That he moves from calling for grace to calling for growth. Just have a look with me at verse 10. It's vital we understand this. Look what he says in verse 10. He's called out for forgiveness and mercy. Then he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Your heart has been the source of all the problem. And it's so from the heart that the solution must come. The transformation must come. David says, create in me. And that word is important. It's the same word that's used at the very beginning of the Bible when God creates the universe. David is saying, God, with the same power that brought the universe to life from nothing, create in me something new. Renew my heart. David's not asking for a quick fix for another New Year's resolution to sort things out. He's asking for a complete renewal. Now, of course, that happens when you first become a Christian. When you first become a Christian, your heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh. But what David says here and is echoed again throughout Scripture is that we need to pray for it to continually happen in our lives. For God to continually renew us, to chip away at our sinful natures, to take away the dirt and grime, daily regeneration, daily renewal. You see, we're like guitars. You know, I don't know if you know this, but if you put strings on a guitar, new strings on a guitar, they go out of tune very quickly. Even when the strings have been there for a long time, every time the band come here and lead us in worship, I'm assuming they tune their instruments. Why? Because when you play them, well, they go out. You and I have been designed to make a wonderful noise for God. We've been designed to sing an incredible song that God is good and He's glorious, that Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and yet just like instruments, we go out of tune. We veer. So what must we do? We must be retuned. Constantly pray to God, create in me a pure heart. Don't leave it a A week, three weeks, four weeks. Oh, I've looked at this. I've done that. I've said that. I can't possibly go back. No. Daily come back and say, God, renew me. Regenerate me. You know, I reckon this psalm, um, it shows us two things. 
It shows us what it is to be a human. The human experience. It's worse than you think. But it also shows us the Christian experience. It's better than you can imagine. You have grace and you have growth. And so I just want to suggest to you two things for you to take home with and dwell upon and think about and apply to your lives. Two things for your Monday to Sunday where we can point our minds and our hearts towards Jesus and continually be changed. The first one is this. What is it that God wants for you? We've looked a lot tonight about what God wants from you. What does God want? He wants repentance, humility, honesty. But what does he want for you? Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David's prayer is not to restore salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But rather to restore the joy that is yours in it. Do you know God wants you to have joy? God wants your life to be joyful. And the joyful nature that you have comes through salvation. Let me put it this way. When sin strips away at you, when you've looked at that again, when you've said those words again, you've thought like that, when you continually do those things, what is it that's stripped away? Well, it's not the power of salvation. Sin has no power over salvation. It's the pleasure of salvation, isn't it? The joy we have in Jesus. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're a Christian. You love Jesus. But you're in a joyless relationship with God. You're in a spiritual wasteland, a desert. Perhaps it's been weeks, months since you've come to God in prayer and read your Bible and done these sort of things. You're here tonight and you're canning the bricks. Don't have bricks. Canning the lights, you know. Your mind's all over the place. Or maybe you are someone who repents all the time. But your repentance and the, and the amount of your repentance is only matched by the amount of your reoccurrence of the same sin that you were repenting from in the first place. I've done it again. I've done it again. I've done it again. Now, if you are in that spiritual desert, let me say, I understand. I've been there. I've been there this year. Months. But there is a way out. And David shows it for us. Listen to what he says. Flee to God for mercy. Own your sins fully. Cling to Jesus who can make you clean. And then constantly turn for renewal. My dear friends, if you are in a position of spiritual wasteland, the hard word that you need to hear is that it's your fault. Don't blame anyone else. When I'm feeling distant from God, my goodness, I'll blame anyone. I'll blame all of you. God, have you met these guys? I can't. We can't do that. Own your responsibility and come to God and ask for renewal. That's it. There are no quick fixes. There's no gimmicks. I love music. You know, I love music. And I'll sit in the car weeping about the death of Jesus and then go out and swear at someone who cut me off. Okay, I love music, but music is not going to transform your life in this way. There's only one way to get out of the spiritual wasteland, and that's to get real with God. My dear friends, what does God want for you? He wants joy. And the way you get joy is through repentance. And true godly repentance leads to salvation which leaves no regret 
come for renewal again and again. And the second and last thing I want you to consider this week, simple sentence, it can be forgiven. You know, we've looked at these themes that pop up through the Bible, but there's one theme above all which comes up again and again and again in every single human being, bar one, through there. From Genesis to Revelation, every single human being has one thing in common, one theme that pops up. Do you know what it is? Sin. David was a murderer and a liar and an adulterer. Moses was a murderer. Abraham was a liar. Samson was violent, misogynistic and drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. Peter denied Jesus. Mark was a coward. Paul killed Christians. I have no idea what is in the hidden confines of your heart. The thing that if it was revealed, you would be devastated by. But understand this. There is nothing you've done that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. It can be forgiven. No matter what it is, bring it to God. The qualifying feature of being a Christian is not perfection. It's sin. Repentance sin. You are not disqualified from God's family by your sin. You are qualified for His grace. And God has made a habit, a habit throughout human history of calling liars and cowards and bullies, the promiscuous, the drunk, thieves, selfish, gossips, adulterers and making them new and then making them new again and again and again. My dear friends, if you are a Christian here tonight, come to God, repent, believe, renew your joy in calling yourself a Christian, knowing that Jesus Christ has died for you. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, maybe you've been pretending You're too scared to tell your family. Maybe you've just been fooling yourself and you you understand that. Maybe you know you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian here tonight, can I urge you one thing? Come to God. Repent and believe. God is a good God of mercy and grace who loves you. Jesus died for you. You can be saved. And God is a God who loves to give good things to his people. I would love for you to come back to him, to repent and put your faith in him. Now, In a moment's time, Luke is going to lead us in confession together. Uh, we're going to be able to bring these things to God uh, verbally and say these things. Uh, but before we do that, let me just close my time with you together uh, in prayer. Will you bow your heads and let's pray. Father, have mercy on us, a group of sinners. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus rose, died and rose from the dead so we may live, we may be forgiven. Lord, I pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts, renewing us afresh. 
I pray for your spirit's work in the hearts of those who do not yet know you, giving them the courage to put their faith in you. Lord, for all of us, create in us pure hearts. Renew your spirit within us. We pray all of this through Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen.